And it's wonderful. So my name is Glenn, and uh, welcome to the South, as, uh, as Curtis has already welcomed you. I just want to add to that. We're delighted you are here. And if it is your first time, then there are Connect cards in the seat pockets right in front of you. Please fill one of those out, and we'd be happy to answer any questions you may have and, uh, and stay in touch. Uh, today... Uh, it's, been a, it's been a good weekend of ministry. The, uh, yesterday, um, we spent the day teaching Wendy and I in, uh, in Life Tracks, and then I spoke last night at 33, got a few hours sleep, and uh, got up this morning and was praying through uh, this sermon. This message this morning is one of those ones that happen every now and again in the life of a preacher and a pastor that kind of are a defining message, that as you are uh, uh, preparing it, it's, it becomes more than just the next thing in our series of real life. Um, my prayer this morning and last night is that this, this message would actually be, uh, would, would, would grab your heart and your spirit and would actually resonate and become one of those that you remember. Um, in all honesty, I can't barely remember what I preached last week, uh, never mind remembering sermons from a long time ago, but my prayer is that God will, will uh, really cement this into your, into your spirit. This is, uh, this is like a family meeting. That's how I, uh, I approached it last night with 33. If, if you are a guest here this morning, or if you are uh, somebody who is still thinking through Christianity, then just like a family meeting, you know, you gather around the table, you get your kids around the table, and you share some things that are important and uh, are vital. And if it's anything like our household, when we have these kind of chats, you seem to have the same chats fairly regularly. Um, but we do it faithfully, believing that they're important. And you, if you're a guest, or if you're someone who is still thinking through Christianity, you kind of get to lean in a little bit and find out what is actually our true heartbeat. What we do, why we do it, and, uh, and, I, and I'm praying that you will also hear from the Lord in, in this message. Regardless of how the world might categorize people, uh, by the way, we don't have any, uh, any, anything appearing on the screen. We're going to do old school this morning where you actually get to look in your Bible rather than just read on the screen uh, because we had some technical issues. So Dwayne has got the morning off. Thank you, Dwayne. And uh, not that it was his fault. He's perfectly innocent. But we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 15. You can turn there while I'm giving this introduction. The, the world uh, categorizes people all the time, whether it be through race or religion or socioeconomic levels, that the categorization of human beings happens all the time. And we do it constantly as part of our everyday culture. The Bible categorizes people into two groups. That's it. There's two types of people as far as God is concerned. And I'm going to show you some scripture to show you that to be the case. It is not churched, unchurched. It's not even Christian, non-Christian. You know, as a church, we, we like to be polite. We want to be uh, gracious and kind, and, and that's a good thing. And so we've created words like unchurched. We've created words like seekers, um, people who are, are on a journey. That's one of the favorite ones of last. People are on a journey, okay? Not sure where that journey's going, but okay, that, that's fine. You, you can be on your journey, but here's what the Bible says when it comes to people. And this is going to make some of you feel uncomfortable, because it's blunt. 
And I'm a blunt kind of guy. And I like the Bible because it's blunt. It's simple in many ways. This is how the Bible categorizes people. You are either found or you are lost. That's it. It would use different terms like dead or alive, ungodly. Or, uh, uh, but essentially when it comes to groupings, it's found and it's lost. And as soon as you start using words like that with people, we're going to get uncomfortable. But as I just reminded you, we do it all the time in our culture. We group people all the time. Well, God maybe was the first one to start doing that. He said, you are either found or you are lost. Philippians 3, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it to you. Philippians 3, verse 8 to 9, this is Paul speaking, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. How? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. He's found in Christ Jesus. Lost is a Bible term. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. Nine times are directly connected with whether or not you know Jesus or not. Whether Jesus is actually the Lord of your life or not. In Luke 19 and verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek, And to save the lost. Thank you for one of you. I do like interaction. It's encouraging. Reminds me that you're awake. This is why I yell, by the way. Um, I don't need a microphone. uh, I can yell quite happily. That Jesus came to seek and to save the... Thank you. Oh, so good. (laughs) It's come to seek and save the lost. You see, Jesus' mission statement, right there. Why did Jesus come to earth? To seek and save the lost. To seek and save the lost. That's Jesus' mission. Not to be a nice guy, and he was. Not to be a good man, and he was. Not to set an example of a good moralistic way to live, and he did. His ultimate reason for coming and we're approaching Christmas and, and the incarnation and Jesus coming as a human being was, Luke 19 verse 10, to seek and save the lost. That was his mission. And then he says to us, that is also our mission. It is all about seeking and saving the lost. As a church, that is why we exist. Our vision statement, I say it every week. Our vision statement is to see lives transformed by Jesus Christ in the Okanagan Valley. Life transformed. Those that are lost, that they might be found. As active Christians, our motivation must be the same as Jesus' motivation, and that is to seek the lost. It's why we do everything we do. But as we think about this, some points come to my mind as I prepared this, some things that we really need to consider. And the first one, point one, is we are surrounded by the lost. They are everywhere. Luke 15 verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. They were gathering around. There was crowds constantly around Jesus. And they were of various groups. There was a tax collector, was the young, the poor, the, the sinners. As there actually was a category that they would give to people at that time. They gathered around Jesus. They were everywhere. 
I wonder if you've ever really been lost. Just by show of hands, how many of you can say that you've actually been to the point of, I have got no idea which direction to go? Okay, wow, that's a lot of you. I, I, I don't know, I sat, when I was thinking of this illustration, I was thinking, have I ever, I can't remember a time when I've ever really felt lost to the point where I've thought, wow, I don't know what I'm going to do. So in times like this, when I can't think of an illustration, I, I, I text and call my lovely wife. And I say, can you, you know, we've known each other for 27 years, been married 23 years, she's going to know if I was ever a time when I was lost. And she said, actually, I can't remember a time when you've said that you've actually been lost. And you might think, well, that's probably just because, you know, maybe you've not got yourself into that situation or, or and, and, and that's fine. But then very quickly, Sarah reminded me that she used to get lost all the time. So I thought, well, she's given me permission so I will therefore use my wife as an illustration for being lost. Because I do remember when we first came to Canada, Sarah struggled with the, the system of finding your way around the grid system. You know, the light, horizontal, vertical roads in, uh, the, in Vancouver, which is where we were living at the time. And she said the main reason was she never could know which way was north or south or east or west. So I said, uh, something I'd heard is you just look for the mountains. The mountains are always north and go f- from there. The problem is that works until you get to Chilliwack. And then the mountains are everywhere. And I said, well, just forget about Chilliwack. Most people do. And let's just think about... <laughs> Let's just think about Vancouver. Because in Britain, all the directions you get in Britain are based on landmarks. Very special, important landmarks. The GPS in Britain is the global pub system. Because every corner seems to have a pub on it. So the directions go like this. Oh, you want to get to the movie theater or the cinema, as we call it in Britain. So what you do is you go down this road until you see the red crown on your left. And you carry on a little bit further and you see the white lion on your right. You turn white, right at the white lion, you carry on until you see the fox and the eagle on your left and you turn left there. It's all global pub system. It works brilliantly well because Brits apparently are always looking for a pub. So we're just conscious of where the pubs are. In Liverpool, there are, uh, there's, there's pretty much, and I'm not exaggerating, a pub literally on every corner. And, uh, and you can go to a different pub every day of the year in Liverpool and not go to the same one twice. There are pubs everywhere. So being lost is, is actually quite challenging for somebody who doesn't know the surroundings. But I wonder if you have been lost, you remember that sense of what it's like to be lost and you can resonate and you can remember back and go, yeah, it's not a pleasant feeling. Being lost without hope Struggling for answers in life is the situation so many people find themselves in. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your, some of your family, the people that you go to, uh, uh, you maybe have as employees, or people that you travel to work alongside, you see the same person every day, or the person that you meet regularly at the coffee shop, or whatever it might be, friends. We need to understand their situation. Their situation is not that they are rich or poor. Their situation is not that they are lonely. Their situation is not that they are addicted. Their situation is that they are lost. And they will ultimately find themselves in hell. And I think we forget 
as Christians what it's actually like to be lost. For many of us, we have spent so long in church, we've spent so long in our Christian subculture that we forget what it is like to feel lost, without hope, struggling for answers. The more we understand our own salvation, the more we understand what happened on the cross and what Jesus did for you and I, the more aware we become of the transformation that's happened in our lives and the lack of transformation that's happened in other people's lives. We are surrounded by the lost. This is a challenging message. Because the reality is, is when you get up in the morning and you look out through that front door and perhaps you're looking at houses in your neighborhood, do you think, are you aware that you are literally surrounded by people whose ultimate destination is away from God, separated from Him for eternity, going to hell? I think if we truly understood the magnitude of what it is that we're facing, regardless of the car that they drive or the house that they live in or the wealth that they might have or the friends and how good looking and how fit they are, none of that matters when it comes to Jesus. They are found or they are lost. Bible tells me that as a pastor and as a teacher that I will be held to higher account, judged by God for what I say and don't say from this pulpit. I take that very, very seriously. I also take it very seriously that as a church, I am not interested and neither is Pastor Phil interested in just growing a crowd. My heart, my prayer My desire is that the lost would be found. And I read this morning in 1 Corinthians, just as part of my own devotions, about how how the the cross that is foolishness to so many people, and yet is life. It's an offense. The fact that I have said lost, and that people you know and love are going to hell, has offended some of you. But I would prefer to be able to stand on that dreadful day before God, knowing that I have spoken the truth because I fear him more than what you might think about what I say, because what I say is true. What I say is true. We are surrounded by the lost. See, lost people, number two, are looking for Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 15 of Luke. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around. Why? To hear Jesus. You see, lost people know that they are lost. The reason that we know that they know they're lost is because of the way that they are desperately seeking something. If we could just get more money, if I could just work out how to better uh, raise my children, if I could have my children be happy and successful, then that is what life is about. And, and, or if I could get this, or if I could go there, or if I could leave here, or if I could, if I could uh, be married to this person, or whatever it might be, there's this constant reaching towards something. And the reason is, is because they know inside there's something missing. And so many times I have preached from this pulpit that people are desperately trying to fill the void that only Christ can fill. They are craving for life. They know that they are lost. Do we care? Does it impact us? 
Does it actually cause us to change the way that we live our lives as Christians, the way that we think, the way that we speak? Because there are people around us who are aching inside, desperately seeking something that would bring an answer to the reason why they are feeling the way they are feeling. And these people in Luke 15 had a sense that somehow Jesus had the answer. In Luke 10, verse 2, it says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful. There's lots of people out there. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. My prayer is that we would be a church where the laborers are many. That we are up to meeting the needs. That we are actually looking at our life through the lens of how does this action, how does this decision, how does this job, how does this family, how does this volleyball game, how does this basketball game give me an opportunity to make much of Jesus so that I might seek and see the lost saved. Do you realize that there are crowds of people seeking Jesus in Kelowna? Thousands of them. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Kelowna right now seeking Jesus. And there are thousands of Christians refusing to open their mouths and share the gospel through fear of what those thousands of lost people might think or say. That's the reality of the situation. The reason I know that to be true is because the Bible says that the harvest is plentiful that Jesus is already at work in the hearts of those that are seeking him. All we need to do is go and be faithful and share the gospel. And the reason I know that that is not happening on a widespread case across the church, not just this church, but across the church in Kelowna, the reason I know that we keep our mouths closed more than open sharing the gospel is because there's empty seats all around this building. We would have to have two, three, four, five services on a Sunday to actually accommodate the number of people who are so desperately seeking Jesus. And God is very clear about where that responsibility lies. And it's on your lap and it's on my lap. Because we have been called to be ministers of reconciliation, agents of the gospel, the fragrance of Jesus himself, to go into our communities, to go into our families, to go into our workplaces and actually open our mouths, take a risk and speak the gospel. But what might they say, Glenn? I don't know. <laughs> be fun finding out though. Because here's what happens when you actually live your life with this lens you start enjoying church more. You do. The reason for that, the reason you're actually keen to come to church and go to your community group, is you will get yourself into so many different situations in the week that you will be desperate to go and tell somebody about it. Or you'll say, pray for me. Or somebody will come to know Jesus and you'll be running into this place to praise the glory of the mighty one that saved a lost one so they might be found. You will love church. People love church when they go into their communities and seek the lost. I was convicted this morning, especially before the Lord, and as I journaled and I prayed, 
and I realize that I am in so many ways more concerned with my own comfort and safety than I am with sharing the gospel to those that desperately need it. That perhaps comfort, safety, ambition, work, business, money, children, the list goes on and on, are in a higher priority than the actual mission that I lived, that I woke up this morning for. My role as a teacher and as a pastor, according to Ephesians 4, is so that you may be equipped for the work of ministry. What is your ministry, Glenn? What is your calling? Your calling is to go into the world and share the gospel, to be the gospel. They want to hear it from you. It's not my job to go and share the gospel to the person that God has placed you next to. Just wait here, I'm going to go and get my pastor. So he can tell you about what it is that I believe in. No, it's you. I don't know what to say. Well, the Bible has an answer for that. You actually just faithfully step out and you share your story and telling them about how Jesus transformed you. He takes care of the rest. You have so many guarantees packaged around your mission. You literally, friends, literally cannot fail. Because they'll either stay lost and that's up to God. They're either closer to the kingdom than we realize, and that too is up to God. Or they will be won and found by Jesus, and that too is up to God. All we do is we get to observe and be faithful. This church, next week, could be filled And it ain't about just getting a full church. It's about people coming to know Jesus, literally being plucked from the embers of the fire of hell. That sounds Puritan, isn't it? But it's true. That's why these seats need to be filled. Look look at them. Filled, they should be with people seeking Jesus. And it could be by next week. Well, I'm, I'm busy next week. What's our response to the lost? Why don't we actually say something? Do you realize, before I get onto this point, how risky this sermon is? <laughs> because this sermon isn't the one where people tend to come running at you afterwards and giving you a high five about how feeling blessed they are. You know, this is, this is, this is a family meeting. It's risky because there may be people in the room who feel really offended by what I say. But it's right. It's, it's Bible. It's why some people don't like to come to the South. <laughs> because I'm not about building a crowd. I want people who are passionate about the mission that the one that we've just been singing about has given to us himself. And I love you too much to keep my mouth closed. I think part of the reason that we don't share to the lost is that they're in an irritation to us. Luke 15 verse 2 says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those were the religious people of the time, they muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
They were the ones that had the faith in God, who represented God in their society, but they were muttering because Jesus had the audacity to spend time with those that were seen to be sinners. They were irritated by those sinners, and they were irritated by God because of this mission. They were irritated by the mission. They were irritated by the messenger, Jesus, of the mission. And I think Christians are in danger of being too irritated and judgmental about lost people. I said last week, a lost person acts in lost ways. They do things that aren't Christian. We can't expect somebody who doesn't know Jesus to follow the holiness and direction of Jesus. And so we get irritated by their behavior. We are more likely to stand at a distance and mutter and complain and judge than we are to actually go and seek and love and care. Well, like I said last week, Glenn, does that mean then that we just accept their behavior and think it's okay? Not at all. As I said last week, that just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean to say that you can't love them. A lost person acts in lost ways. I think about how I really came into a relationship with Jesus. And one thing that I was very aware of was that I was loved towards Jesus. Not judged towards Jesus. Not argued towards Jesus. Not muttered towards Jesus. And trust me, there was a lot to judge and mutter about. Just talk to Sarah. She knew me before I became a Christian. I was loved and cared for and prayed for. Somebody walked across the room for me to talk to me and and spend time with me regardless of my behavior that was rubbish. It was not Christian. But there was Christians around me that cared enough for me to actually love Jesus more than they loved me. And loving Jesus more than they loved me means that they love me because they follow the command of Jesus. We need to be careful that we don't stand in judgment and criticism first against those who do not know Jesus. We do not accept what they do as being right, but neither do we take what they do and bash them over the head with it in the hope that somehow they will get knocked out and wake up a Christian. I have never seen anyone argued into heaven. I've seen lots and lots of people loved and prayed for. Saved radically. We have Willow One Prayer and a week on Monday, and what a beautiful opportunity to bring those people that we love and care about and, and pray for them together as a church. So, how should we respond to the lost? Jesus shared a few stories that caused some questions for us to consider. Luke 15, verse 4, it says, So, in response to these people muttering, he says this. He told the parable, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So the first thing this tells me is that that there's a sense of responsibility and urgency from the shepherd. That it's the shepherd's job to go after the sheep. It's the worker's job to go after that lost sheep. 
One of my favorite stories, and I, I know that I have shared this before, but it, the context works so well, was actually said by um, a, a, an excellent speaker, Francis Chan. He shared a time where a friend of his who was a pastor was on the way to dropping his little girl, or just a toddler, at the, uh, at the daycare and then on to work. And he got stuck in the Los Angeles traffic in the morning. And for those of you who have ever traveled through LA, then the traffic can get very thick and he was sat there and the traffic wasn't moving and he's just sat and, and just waiting. And then the car in front of him, and he found out later it was actually driven by quite an elderly gentleman. He, he, I think he pulled into the hard shoulder to look to see what the problem was further on, which is something we've all done, I'm sure. But as he pulled out, he did not check his shoulder and there was a cyclist coming down the hard shoulder and he clipped the cyclist and the cyclist got thrown onto the ground. The pastor is watching this all unfold right in front of him and this cyclist jumps up, rushes over to the car of this elderly gentleman, throws open the door and starts pounding on this old man, thumping him, punching him, screaming and yelling. He's absolutely furious. This pastor is watching and and I often think about situations like this and I go, well, I know what I would do. I would do exactly what this pastor would do, which is he got out of his car and he rushed over and he placed himself between the cyclist and the driver of the car. So literally the cyclist is trying to get around the pastor to get at this elderly gentleman and the pastor is is holding him back and, and standing in between. What a beautiful, heroic, courageous moment that we all go, yes, I would do that. Then the pastor found himself, because this man was not relenting, he said later, he said, I just clenched my fist and I found myself doing a full roundhouse punch and punched this pastor full in the jaw, uh, sorry, the cyclist, full in the jaw, knocked him clean out. One punch. Over. And he said, I looked at this man on the floor and I thought, my pastoral career is also over. It's not very Mennonite, but part of me is like, that's awesome. In fact, the next week when he told his church about this, his church gave him a standing ovation. It's the kind of church I want to lead. The police interviewed the pastor and they asked him what it was that happened and he told the story and, and the police officer said, well, how many times did you punch him? Because by this time, the cyclist was being taken away in an ambulance. How many times did you punch him? And the pastor said, just once. And the police officer said, good punch. <laughs> he obviously was not charged. And I think of situations like that and I go, oh, yeah, Part of me kind of dreams about things like that happening. Just, I just want to be a hero. We all want to be some kind of hero in some way. Why do you think these games are so popular where you've got especially young men running around on virtual worlds blowing stuff up? They just want to be a hero. They just want to level up. It says this in Revelation 21. And I really wish this verse was not in the Bible. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, 
Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What disturbs me most about that verse is the way that the cowards are grouped with the faithful, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, and the sexually immoral sorcerers. The reality is, no matter how much I dream about a situation where I could be shown to be a hero, and I have said this before, are we willing to get up off our seats and walk across a room to share the gospel with somebody that ultimately is in far more danger than any elderly man sat in a car? Because their danger is actually eternal. Their danger is that they will ultimately end up in hell because they are lost. And we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are the heroes, if you like, that are called to every situation, not just to the hope that we live life in a good way and that somehow Christianity will emanate out of us like body odor, that they'll just notice and become Christians. We have to open our mouths. We have to speak the truth. We have to share the gospel. And if you're thinking, I don't know any non-Christians, I don't think I need to say anything about that. Because that's another danger. Parents, do not shield your children. You know we get complaints sometimes as a youth uh, department that there are too many non-Christian kids that come to our youth. Some kids are smoking dope. Come You need to sort that out. Well, yeah, we will. But isn't it great that kids who smoke dope are coming to a youth group? Well, what about my kid? Well, you better start teaching them how to deal with that. Because by the time they get to university, they're going to see a whole lot worse. And by the way, these kids who are smoking weed, they're also the same kids going to the ark and becoming Christians. And they end up being care group leaders in a few years' time because they're being discipled for Jesus. You see, we make a habit as a church to make sure that everything we do is to see the lost saved. So friends, do you have unsaved Christians? Uh, Friends, sorry. Do you have unsaved acquaintances? Do you position yourself so that you can actually be Christ to people around? And I don't like this sermon. Can I tell you? I don't like this sermon either because it's the truth. The reality is I don't think we feel the responsibility nor the urgency that Christ describes in this scripture. So my simple question is who is that one sheep in your life? The thing with sheep is they smell like sheep. They look like sheep. There's nothing pleasant about sheep. I've said this before, coming from living in Wales for quite a while, there's nothing great about sheep. They're not fluffy and cute. Trust me, you do not want to cuddle a sheep. They stink. There's nothing great about them. Do you know sometimes it's really hard work? It's really hard work as a Christian to be around situations and sometimes people that are just challenging. But we're caught. This is why we do what we do. Is it why you do what you do? said we must persistently and lovingly seek the lost because Jesus goes on to share stories about about lost coins and about how the coin is searched for carefully can I encourage you that God is the one that works in people's lives all we do is we get to sweep up 
We just get to share the gospel and enjoy. And it says they rejoice when they, it is found. That we, we get to come alongside God who is already working in the hearts of people. We know that because they're desperately looking for an answer. So we come alongside. We share the gospel. We share life. We share transformation story. And they come to know Jesus. But it can take a long time. Be encouraged that God is at work. In Luke 15, it says he joyfully, once he finds the sheep, puts it on his shoulders, joyfully. The lady who had lost the coin says, rejoice with me. Verse 23, the father of the prodigal son, let us have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. There's deep joy in being part of a church where people regularly are coming to know Jesus. There is deep joy of being involved in the process and the journey that they might be on as they come to know Jesus. As many of you know, my, my kind of, one of my pastors, I like to think of it this way, is actually Charles Spurgeon. I spend a lot of time with Pastor Spurgeon, with his writings and and kind of reading his biography. And one of the things that was, he was famous for was he was tremendously unapologetic and blunt. Like, he was a force to be reckoned with. And uh, one, of my, one of the stories that I enjoy the most is that apparently that if you apply to go to Spurgeon's College for pastors to actually learn to become a pastor... You would have an interview with Spurgeon himself and he would, uh, the two things history tells us, first of all, he would measure your chest or they would measure your chest because there was no such thing as, as microphones and PA systems at that time. So they wanted to see whether you had the capability to preach the gospel loud enough for people to hear. Isn't that fantastic? Love it. The second thing, which is slightly more sobering, is this. He would ask this question. How many people have you led to know Jesus? And if they got sheepish and said whatever number wasn't sufficient, Spurgeon said, come back when you've led more. Then I will train you to be a pastor. And I just kind of started to think about our own Bible schools and Bible colleges. I wonder how full they would be if that was the prerequisite to actually getting in. How many people have you actually led to come to know Jesus? Because friends, it is far more simple than we think. You just be faithful. You be bold. And Jesus does the rest. So how do you develop this heart for the lost as we bring this to a close? How do we as a church move from the place where perhaps we have a lack of compassion at times, to a place where we are driven to see those who do not know him come to know him. A place where we look at our jobs and our finances and our uh, opportunities and the situations we find ourselves in, we see them purely as opportunities to make much of Jesus. How do we get to that place? How do we learn? And you know, I can tell you this very surely, it is not through better systems of education in the church. 
It's not by going to life tracks or, or set free or, or anything like that. There's a very simple way to actually have this, this vigor and, and passion and burning for people who do not know Jesus. And it is only one way that I can see in Scripture this happens. It's by leaning in and placing our head on the chest and the heart of God and hearing his heartbeat. The closer we are to God who has a passion for the lost, the more time we spend with him, the more like him we become. If you give me long enough, I will bore you to tears about how amazing my kids are. They're the most amazing kids in the world. Sorry. They really are. The reason I will happily bore you with stories and tell you about how great they are is because I love them so much. And whatever we love, we love to tell. And the closer we become to God, the closer and more sure we are about finding time to spend with him and praying and and thanking Jesus and looking to the gospel and reminding ourselves of the gospel and what the gospel has done and how it's transformed us. The more time we spend with him, we start hearing the heartbeat of God and that heartbeat resonates with the love for the lost. The reality is, friends, the less you care about the lost, the less time you are spending with God. Because it's just a natural byproduct. So this is where it gets tremendously simple for a simple guy like me. Is that I burn with a desire to see the lost saved. I do not burn with a desire to see bums on seats. I burn to see people who don't know Jesus coming to know Jesus and therefore the church growing. And I believe that that has come because I have spent a lot of time before the Lord praying for that, spending time with him, thinking about him. I just certainly do not set myself up as an example, but what I, I do know is by experience, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more like him you become and the more unapologetic you will be about sharing the gospel because you will want others to have what you have got. So the simplicity is, is that today... We can become before him and we can ask for forgiveness for the way that we live our lives. Seeking comfort, perhaps, more than we seek him. And then tomorrow, we can go, or today we can go and fulfill the calling that he has given us, which is to represent him well in our community. That we can seek out that one sheep that maybe God has given you to pray for and to talk to and invite to come to live in nativity or coffee or whatever it might be. That you could come to Willow on Prayer and pray with us as a church as we seek to see more and more people come to know Jesus. Who is that one person that you have? 